This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour. Today I'm Cassie Huff this Thursday afternoon. Coming up, Livestock SA will outline the work they're doing towards mandatory electronic sheep tags, where that's up to. And debate rages over which company or government body should pay for an upgrade to the rail system on the Air Peninsula. When it's up and running, you have a more effective uh, freight service, but more importantly, you have the 60 um, uh, trucks that are now on the road for every rail, those trucks come off the road. We'll follow up on that soon. But first up today, the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry is on the cusp of requiring a financial bailout as it falls hundreds of millions of dollars in the red. One insider with knowledge of the cash flow woes described the department's finances as custard. Another has told the ABC the situation is desperate and must be addressed within months. Warwick Long speaks with ABC Rural Department's Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan, who has been exposing the details of the department's dire finances. We've learned that the department could be in debt to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, I've heard differing views as to how long this problem's been festering for, uh, but we know that the department has had to take action and it's notified staff of some of the cost-cutting measures. This includes a ban on all travel and training for staff and the the ending of several contracts for contracted workforce. We understand that uh, permanent staff won't be affected by the cost-saving measures, but the department's already started uh, ceasing or ending contracts with some of its contracted workforce. And it's worth pointing out, Warwick, that the amount of spending that goes on to contractors from the department has really increased over the last little while. Um, about a decade ago, the spend was something like $5 million. More recently in 2021-22, we saw the spend on contractors up close to $90 million um, per year. So uh, that's one area that the department's clearly identified as an area where it can save money. And Kath, this is a department that does important work on behalf of the government, Mm. either managing biosecurity risks, uh, working with industries that, as we've learnt this week, are are valued at over $90 billion right now. Are any of those works from the department at risk? Well, the department tells us that all essential services will continue and remain unaffected by these budgetary constraints. And you touch on biosecurity there, and we know the role that uh, our biosecurity frontline plays in protecting agriculture from things like foot and mouth disease, which has the potential to wipe that $90 billion just about off off the trade. But you know, that's just agriculture. There's $6 trillion worth of environmental assets that could be uh, implicated if we don't have a strong biosecurity defence line. And some of the services that the department provides or performs are things like at quarantine, ensuring that travellers returning from Bali are walking over foot mats to, to disinfect their boots, scanning mail coming into the country to ensure that there's no uh, meat product that hasn't been treated or, or that is coming in without pro- proper permits. Things like sniffer dogs in our airports and at our ports. It's also overseeing the, uh, our international trade and ensuring regulation of uh, animal welfare standards for live exports. And it's probably worth pointing out was that 
The Department of Agriculture is a little bit different to other um, federal public bureaucracies in that it's a large amount of its funding actually comes from cost recovery or or fees for services. That is, people who use these services, who use these um, biosecurity services, for example, are the ones who actually pay. And this is a system that hasn't been reviewed um, since 2015, um, so eight years now. And we have seen a lot of changes to the demand on biosecurity services. You think about the way that COVID has impacted the supply chain and our freight and shipping channels um, and just the threats that we're seeing. Um, I touched on African swine fever and uh, foot and mouth disease, which of course are inching ever closer to Australia's shores. So the threats are increasing, demand for services is increasing, but somehow the finances haven't been able to keep up and we know that the department's spending more money than it's got coming in. You hear about a government department having a shortfall Mm. in its budget. What does that actually mean, I suppose, in the day-to-day until something is sorted out here? Well, it means that they're spending more money than they've got coming in. We're yet to hear from the government um, since learning about the extent of the the cost blowout at the department. We're hoping the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, might be available um, shortly. He has oversight of the department and we know that they've had to cut services. It sounds like a quite a stressful time for people who work within the department, for people who rely on their services. Now the department's told us that essential services aren't being affected by this cost cutting endeavour, we'll call it. It says that it is ensuring that it meets all of its statutory responsibilities, that essential services are going ahead. But I think that we're going to see a lot more questions asked about this in the coming days, weeks and months. And now I think it's becoming even clearer that this next coming federal budget due in just a couple of months in May, we'll need to go some way to addressing um, and funding these really important services. Certainly will be a hot topic, I can imagine, heading into the budget. That was the ABC Rural Parliament House reporter, Kath Sullivan. And you can read more online at abc.net.au slash rural. And as mentioned, the Minister for Agriculture, Mari Watt, has been contacted for comment. To what's happening in South Australia around a, a mandatory... Um, rollout of sheep and goat EID tags. Debate continues regarding the nature of this rollout, which is a project to establish a system for tracking sheep and goats throughout the supply chain in South Australia and indeed Australia. Now, a Livestock SA committee is delivering the project and last week reviewed the final business case that included looking at the work that's been done by the Supply Chain Steering Committee. Livestock SA CEO Travis Tobin can explain where this process is up to. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So the committee has reviewed the final business case. What does this mean? Uh, yeah, so the committee's reviewed it and signed off on it. Um, as you may remember, uh, last year we appointed a supply chain committee to make sure we could get the perspectives from across the whole supply chain of industry. Um, and then they, they finalised that um, recently and obviously submitted it to the government and also to the Livestock SA board. We had a board meeting last week, so the, the board reviewed it as well. So the committee's uh, moved on to its next um, phase. So it's a two-phase project. Uh, the next phase is really about, OK, they've done the business case with the numbers. Um, now, how are they looking to rec- make recommendations around implementation uh, and communications to ensure... Uh, effective rollout of mandatory EID. What are some of the key points of the business case that's been reviewed? 
Oh, I can't release the numbers, Cassie, because obviously the government paid for the majority of it, so it'll be up to the government to advise when we can talk about the numbers in the business case. But it, it really identifies so a, um, a a capital cost, so like you know what you, what infrastructure that you need to put in place is a cost associated with that as a one-off cost. And then it also articulates a, um, a tag cost. And as we know, for producers, that's a cost year on year. So it will come as no surprise to everyone. They're big numbers, um, as expected. And it was really about making sure we've got effective costing across all elements of the supply chain in South Australia. So we're not reliant upon uh, a number that's handed down to us from a federal level. And moving to implementation as the next stage, several meetings have shown there is some resistance to mandatory EID tags in South Australia. One of the issues raised is whether or not there'd be an exemption for direct-to-slaughter sheep. Is that going to be considered? Yeah, the exemptions discussions still continue. So uh, direct-to-slaughter is one of the animal classes and there's there's other sort of vendor-bred arrangements, um, you know, people in pastoral areas, for example. So the... The exemptions discussions continue. The, the challenge with exemptions is um, there's a strong commitment towards a harmonised system, and, and all governments have agreed to that. Um, and you know, in reality, we, we need a harmonised system. That's one of the principles that that lost, I guess, a board reinforced last week. But the discussions around exemptions continue. So, are, are there merit in doing them? If so, how would they how would they work? Um, you know, you've also got to think you, you're stepping outside of the system that's proposed. So, if you're doing that what assurances and uh, auditability and all that are you going to put in place that, that guarantees to consumers and overseas markets, et cetera, that it's, a, it's as robust a system as the, the system more broadly. So so those discussions continue within industry. They're being discussed um, at peak industry councils, for example. We've discussed it with the state government on numerous occasions and, and we've always been advised that um, the state government's not considering state-specific exemptions, but, yeah, the discussions continue, but I don't really have anything to, to advise you further on that just now. New South Wales, though, granted an exemption to goat producers, rangeland goat producers, a couple of weeks ago. So other states are doing exemptions. Now, growers and, as you've outlined as well, harmonisation is important, consistency across the, the states, but does that undermine the ability for Livestock SA to really advocate for South Australian growers? No, I think the goat exemption has been a bit misinterpreted there. So that was actually agreed uh, by the National Task Force, as it's called, um, last year. And uh, it, it's not any goat production. It's not farm goats. It's, it's very specific insofar as it's only feral goats, but the term being used is um, harvested rangeland goats. So that that's always been a nationally agreed arrangement through the task force, and that was some time ago last year. It may be just coming to light um, in New South Wales, if that's the case. But in South Australia, it doesn't actually change the way we currently move um, uh, rangeland harvest of goats on permit systems. So it's consistent with what we do now. Farmers are concerned about the cost this will incur, and a couple of the Livestock SA points allude to that as well, proportional financial support for the relative sectors as well as financial assistance um, potentially for an equitable funding arrangement across the supply chain with recognising the ongoing cost to producers. Uh, this would be part of the, the coming steps, the implementation steps that you're looking at now. But this is going to be a big hurdle to get over for a lot of people and uh, how, how are the costs going to be addressed? Yeah, absolutely. And that that's why we felt it was important at the board meeting last week to revise the, the principles that we started with and make sure they are still current and that's what's guiding our focus and yeah you've you've rightfully picked up 
uh, Cassie, that there is a strong emphasis on uh, equitable cost share because, you know, it, it is not um, and, and we will not support a system where producers wear the brunt of the cost. It, it absolutely has to be a shared cost and equitable costing arrangements. And, and it's that recognition that, yes, there's capital infrastructure costs up front, but where tags are concerned, producers incur that year on year. Um, and that needs to be factored into what's worked out. Um, th there is work within industry trying to look at uh, tag tenders and those sorts of things to bring the costs of tags down. But so that's underway. And again, that's not a simple discussion because there's resellers involved with that as well that, that would be implicated in those sorts of decisions. We don't want to create anti-competitive behaviour in markets and those sorts of things. So, But it's absolutely always focused on driving the cost of tags down. Other things in industry, there's you know technological um, advancements in tags being looked at. So whether we can change the technology to bring the cost of tags down and the, and the tag retention and the, the efficacy of the tags themselves and those sorts of things. So there are things happening, but yeah, right now, uh, people look at it and they go, well, there's a cost differential. Who's who's making up for that? And that's why we're, as I said, strongly reinforcing that it's got to be equitable cost share. And, you know, it's the only way it's going to work because everyone's, everyone's in it together. Given that Livestock SA has been doing a lot of this background work, is it undermining the, the lobby group, given that there are members of Livestock SA that are vehemently opposed to mandatory EID tags, yet the lobby group is the organisation designing it? In New South Wales, the New South Wales Farmers President, for instance, has been able to advocate for people who are against it, but it seems South Australian sheep op producers aren't really getting that option. Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Um... And again, some of this is circumstantial. We started this work back before it was mandated, and I think that's been lost in the in the conversation a bit as well. So, so we started this back in, well, the bids sort of went in in March for the money, and um, the project started uh, sort of in May June, and and then it wasn't till you know July and then September when first of all it was agreed by governments that they'd mandate, and then in September they set a date and those sorts of things. So. In some ways, the project's been overtaken by events, but the the work that was starting in the project still carried through. So it was about initially maybe determining more about decision making, but the other work around determining where are the costs felt and how do we make sure those costs are equally distributed and those sorts of things, that work is still occurring. So um, as I said, it, it's work that had to be done anyway, and it has put us in a little bit of an awkward position, but... Um, you know, we're, we're consulting with members widely and I was in Woodley yesterday for the meetup forum. There was a lot of talk there about EID amongst other things, you know, obviously MLA, so it's around markets, carbon, those sorts of things as well. But there was a couple of producers over there that were talking about how they are using EID on farm for decision making, etc. Um, and, and, you know, there was a discussion afterwards and, and there didn't appear to be uh, a, a strong resistance, about 100 producers in the meeting, uh, a strong resistance to EID by that group over there. So, um, as I said, we're aware that there are areas and we are talking about those areas with governments all the time and as I said before, within industry. Um, but, yeah, at a state level, um, it, it, it is hard to consult with everyone, but we're consulting with, with as many as we can. Thank you so much for your time today. I guess we'll talk more about uh, the implementation as that gets further underway. Thanks for your time. Pleasure, Cassie. Livestock SA CEO Travis Tobin speaking there. It's 20 past 12. Now, uh, we... Uh
chatted about this about a week ago. The group that's uh, behind the push for rail to return to the Air Peninsula has welcomed the announcement that it could be up and running by Harvest 2024. Viterra has joined with Australia's largest freight operator, Horizon, to push to have rail freight back on the EP. The two companies have submitted a formal application to the federal government for funding for the upgrade to the network between Port Lincoln and Cummins and Cummins to Woodner and Kimber. March for Air's Mari Shaw grew up on the train line at Locke and says it was a sad day when the last train went through. In February 2021, there was a meeting at Locke because the supermarket had closed, that the school was um, essentially disappearing, down to 50-odd students from uh, about 350 not too long before. And uh, it was almost like a ghost town and the town were gathering all the, the thinking and resources they could to try and essentially save their community. So I um, went along to that meeting and uh, realised that uh, the, the, the people from Locke were actually having to get their groceries from Cummins and was staggered to think that um, that rail uh, was allowed to close. So we I then met with people from um, different areas of the Air Peninsula and we formed a group called March for Air that was essentially going to lobby to revise what uh, infrastructure and, and retain infrastructure that was still disappearing. Uh, and our first local uh, challenge was saving the Lock Catholic Church, which we managed to get the full sale to sign down, uh, but concentrating all the while on rail because um, if we could reinstate rail, uh, we were well aware that as, as occurring in other states, uh, with an in-rail, inland rail from Brisbane to Melbourne, uh, with regional Victoria spending billions on rail, Western Australia or their freight converting to rail, um, they, that's where you stimulate business, you stimulate employment opportunities and you create what the economists call the circular economy. And then when it's up and running, you have a more effective uh, freight service. But more importantly, I'm probably going more into the detail, but more importantly, you have the 60 um, uh, trucks that are now on the road for every rail those trucks come off the road. Mari, what has been your reaction to Viterra and Horizon's plans to get the uh, rail up and running again? Look, look it, it, it's fantastic news. One of the misunderstandings that I've seen occurring, and in particular I, I heard what uh, the member for Grey was saying on radio, very disappointing. The indicate suggestion was that this was about a private company like Viterra getting taxpayers' money uh, when it has walked away from its responsibilities. The, the correct situation is that, in fact, as I said, the rail is owned by the state government. It's now an operator called Horizon, which is a leading Australian company that's involved in grand haulage. And Viterra's role is that it is the haulage operator that actually uh, is responsible for all the silos and is the exporter or has the port down at Lincoln. Uh, and so their responsibility is to get the grain to silos. So what Viterra... Uh, and Horizon have done has said, we will together work to reopen the rail, uh, which, which, as I say, is actually a state government responsibility ultimately, uh, by uh, lobbying the federal government for the kind of uh, import that the other states are getting uh, towards regional rail. Now, Viterra, as I say, it does not have any commercial arrangement with that rail or any responsibility at all, um, but it has, and I've spoken to people in Viterra, I've seen the correspondence to uh, part of the funding sort, and what they are offering to do is to actually contribute to the infrastructure 
and rebuild the loading bays. Horizon, on the other hand, I've spoken to them as well. They have uh, done what's called a high rail. They believe that the rail can be reopened for what would be a viable way to uh, manage the rail. And more importantly, if we get that rail reopened, then you are going to take those 60 trucks for every rail off the roads and instead of the taxpayer having to fork out uh, millions of dollars uh, for what we know were three overtaking lanes was the bonus that uh, was delivered to the people of EP for closing the rail, uh, taxpayers won't be paying for the damage caused by trucks on roads. Obviously, there'll still be trucks, but the number of trucks over there at the moment is just beyond belief. March for Airs, Mari Shaw speaking with Brooke Nindorf. Member for Grey Rowan Ramsey says Viterra and Arajan should pay for the re-establishment of rail on the Air Peninsula themselves. So my understanding is they're asking for $220 million from the federal government to rebuild the railway on Air Peninsula. Um, and my immediate thoughts on that is they could pay for this with their spare change. And considering they were the last customer of that railway and pulled their service, uh, pulled their trade, maybe four years ago, four or five years ago, uh, and now they want it rebuilt at taxpayers' funds for only them to use because uh, Viterra is the only customer on that line. It's the only potential customer. It's not suitable for other things. And, uh, in fact, in many cases, it, it is now passing defunct infrastructure that Viterra owns uh, that is really also in, in the last century of grain handling. So I think it's a bit of wishful thinking on, on their behalf. So you support the comeback of rail but not the federal government uh, funding it? If somebody wants to rebuild the rail, fine, if there's a business case for it. But I suspect the reason that they need $220 million of taxpayers' funds means there's nothing like a business, a viable business case for it. Uh, but if somebody wants to rebuild it and can and can make that pay uh, out, of, out of their operations, well, good luck to them. Uh, but my view is if you had to pass that kind of cost on to the growers, which is the only place you can pass it eventually, well, no one would use, no one would use that system because it would be uh, too expensive. Now, I'd love to see less freight on the road, I suppose, and more on the rail. And it's worth remembering uh, that road trucks, and in fact the, the uh, uh, alteration to their excise has only just come through Parliament, uh, are actually pay an amount which is calculated... Uh, to pay for the damage they do to the roads. So, but essentially, when farmers put their grain on trucks, it's built into the freight price, uh, which is built into the fuel cost is part of that freight price, and that, that fuel excise goes to pay for the damage that the, the, the farmers' uh, grain did to that road by using the truck. Uh, the railways, by comparison, don't pay fuel excise because they're expected to build their own railways. Now, um, because they're not using the ride, it makes sense that they don't pay the excise, but, of course, the the quid pro quo for that is that they should fund the, the rail themselves. And uh, that's why, in this case, I'm um, pretty wary about this proposal. If, if it was a good idea, they'd, they'd finance it themselves and uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have to trouble the taxpayer for it. Member for Grey, Rowan Ramsey, speaking with Bernadette Clark. More online at abc.net.au slash news. We'll head across to the Weather Bureau now. West Indy forecaster Mark Analak has the latest. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie, and it looks like we're in for a bit of a cool couple of days. We've got a high-pressure system south of the Bight. That's pushing some partly cloudy skies and, and mild temperatures up over agricultural areas and even into the southern parts of the pastoral districts. We did see some rainfall push as far north as the southern pastorals. Uh, generally falls were less than 10 millimetres across the Mount Lofty Ranges there. Um, for the next couple of days, 
generally fine conditions uh, under the bridge of high pressure. We might see an increased risk of shower activity over the over the southeast corner of the state on Sunday, with an upper level disturbance moving through and a, and a series of cold fronts passing over the southeast. But otherwise, fine conditions across the state. The northern parts of South Australia will remain sunny, and uh, even when we look into early part of next week, uh, conditions start to warm up and still remain fine under the influence of a high pressure ridge. So in terms of rainfall amounts for the next couple of days, we're probably only looking at a sort of a, a couple of millimetres, mostly falling on Sunday. The lower southeast might see two to five millimetres, but uh, otherwise, fairly stable conditions for South Australia for the next uh, week ahead, Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Mark Analak there from the Weather Bureau. Far west of New South Wales will be sunny in the Upper Western tomorrow. Overnight temperatures falling to 12 to 17 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching the low to mid 30s. The Lower Western also sunny, getting down to 10, but during the day reaching around 30 degrees. We've got more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's lovely to have your company this afternoon. If you've just joined me, I'm Cassie Huff. And coming up, the state government has chosen a pretty controversial location to build the much-needed desalination plant on the Eyre Peninsula. Port Lincoln's successful aquaculture industry is being based on pristine oceanic waters. Pretty hard to boast about pristine oceanic waters when you have a desal plant stuck in the middle of it. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on the decision by the government to choose the Billy Lights Point location for the Air Peninsula's desalination plant. There's been some protests against this. However, the government says that uh, it is a lot cheaper than the alternative that was selected. So what do you think? Uh, text me 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two. Eight nine one, and we've been talking about carp a little lately. Well, uh, there were thousands of you out and about in the Riverland on the weekend to put a dent in the pest fishes population. I'll tell you just how much you were able to do that in the next fifteen minutes or so. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, a former Adelaide prison boss will serve at least another year behind bars alongside the prisoners that he stole money from. Former Adelaide Remand Centre General Manager Brenton Williams was today sentenced to almost three years jail with an on-parole period of one year and seven months. The 47-year-old has already served more than six months since his arrest for stealing more than $100,000 of prisoner money and petty cash over the three months in mid-2022. The state government has announced it will choose Billy Lights Point as location for the Air Peninsula desalination plant. Despite the local aquaculture industry protesting against the decision, the Site Selection Committee's proposed Sleaford West site was the most supported location locally. However, it was not chosen due to it costing $150 million more than the current proposal. And the Premier says more television will be produced in the state for national and international audiences thanks to a new deal. The SA Film Corporation is committing more than $5 million over three years to an ABC agreement to boost screen industry development. The Premier Peter Malinowskis says the partnership will also create about an extra 400 jobs. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. There now, as he and I were saying, the state government has chosen Billy Lights Point as the location for the Air Peninsula's desalination plant. Now, that's despite quite a lot of the local aquaculture industry protesting against this site. Sleaford West was actually the most supported location locally, but it hasn't been chosen because it was going to cost about $150 million more than the current proposition. Environment Minister Susan Close says she understands Billy Lights Point is a controversial site, but it's essential to have a desalination plant up and running by 2025. Well, we've gone through an extensive process to look at a number of different sites, as uh, Port Lincoln and Air Peninsula locals will be well aware. And Billy Lights is the one that stacks up. It stacks up because it is the cheapest, and we have to bear in mind that we all pay for, for these very expensive desalination plants and other infrastructure. And also, we've done the scientific research to look at the impact on the local environment, and there just isn't one. The extent of impact from the salinity that will come from the desalination plant is within the normal variability in the environment anyway. So given the price and given that degree of comfort, we really can't make any other choice. And we certainly can't say that we're not going to have a plant for Port Lincoln and for the Air Peninsula because the water security issue is becoming really urgent. The site selection committee spent multiple months with experts across the Air Peninsula and they came up with Sleaford West. So are you saying that wasn't chosen due to money? Essentially, it's at least another $150 million on top of the cost of Billy Lights. And while I respected the process that the previous government had put in place to allow the Site Selection Committee to look at all the alternatives, uh, we can't make a decision that spends the public's money without a sufficient justification. And I'm sorry about that because Peter Trelaw is a very good leader and I have the utmost respect for the way that he and the Site Selection Committee conducted their work. They did what was asked of them by David Spears, but... We can't spend public money without justification and particularly not at $150 million at least. So regretfully, we're going to have to stick to the original proposition that the others were being tested against, which is Billy Light's point. As I'm sure you're well aware, the aquaculture industry are against Billy Light Point being used. They say that the dispersing of hypersaline near the aquaculture farm, such as kingfish or tuna, will impact them. How will that be mitigated? So we had a piece of research done by Sadi to look at that very question because, of course, if we were proposing to put hypersaline water into the bay and cause environmental harm and have a negative effect on aquaculture, then we would need to know that and do something about it. But the study doesn't bear that out. The study says that the variability in saline that will come as a result of this is within the normal tolerances. So we're talking about a variability of about 1 to 1.2%. The normal variability is up to 4%. So this simply isn't an argument that we're able to demonstrate that would suggest that the people of South Australia ought to spend another $150 million on top of the 300-odd million that this one will cost to move it elsewhere. And, you know, we're, very, we're in a very regulated industry with water. We can't justify spending money to Escoza, the, the regulators, unless there is evidence. 
and there just isn't the evidence to say that there needs to be a move. Now, I accept that many people in the community of Port Lincoln would like to see it elsewhere. I hope that they will listen to the scientific evidence and I hope they'll also understand that the most pressing need is to make sure that they have water security. But I respect that they would wish it to be otherwise. But we simply can't continue to entertain alternatives when there's no additional money available. Environment Minister Susan Close speaking with Bernadette Clark. The seafood and aquaculture industry is angry and disappointed about this decision from the state government to choose Billy Lights Point as the location. Mark Andrews from EP Seafood says the Boston Bay ecosystem is too important for the government to take risks with it. But he told Brooke Nindoff he knew this announcement was coming. Yeah, I had a gut feel that it was coming back, sadly. Uh, just the way that uh, well, we, the site selection committee was formed to uh, pick an alternative site to Billy Light's Point, they chose Sleepwood West. And when the costs, costings came in for Sleepwood West compared to Billy Light's Point, the gut feel, the rumour mill had it that it was um, never going to get the funds to build it at Sleepwood West, so but it was going to come back to Billy Light's Point. What are you most disappointed about? Well, where in the world do you find a desalination plant in the middle of, a, of an aquaculture zone? Um, you, you just don't. So um, the mussel industry relies 100% on, on the natural mussel fall that occurs here on Proper Bay every year, Boston Bay. It's so unique compared to anywhere else uh, in Australia. Everywhere else in Australia, they rely on hatchery spat. We don't rely on any hatchery spat. And to think to put a, a desalination plant with an intake uh, within the bays that will suck in, and nobody knows how much uh, muscle spat, which will take it away from myself catching it, it just poses so much risk to my business that cannot be managed. So what sort of impact would it have for those that, that, that don't, haven't heard before? Well, nobody knows. No one, no one can measure the risk. I mean, uh, so SA Water, they, they got Sardi to do a report on, on the... Um, on the bays, and that report came out and, and said that it was poor flushing char- characteristics within the bay and uh, water, poor water circulation. Um, that was reviewed by the uh, Site Selection Committee and a, and a separate marine science review panel. Uh, this report hasn't been publicly released yet, but hopefully uh, shortly it does. I've had it peer-reviewed, and uh, there were some uh, serious flaws in the report, which um, undermined the risk of the proposed uh, desal plant in the improper bay. So, yeah, the risk to my business is huge. It cannot be managed and, and to think, you know, to put uh, a business at risk that employs 75 people, uh, the largest muscle grower processor in Australia. I mean, we're, you know, we're really, we're kicking some goals on our new product development, everything else. Uh, it's a distraction that we don't need, but we're going to have to go back to where we were before and uh, throw all our resources at to stop it ever happening. Well, what do you do from here now? Well, I've got to sit down and work out a strategy on how I play my cards and, and, and work with that, really. Yeah, build a good team around me, have good science. Um, and, yeah, when we all want water security. We want water for the peninsula. Um, don't get me wrong there. I've always been an advocate for that, but not to put a desal plant in the middle of an agriculture zone that puts uh, a whole heap of things at risk, not only my business, but all, all the other uh, local businesses that operate, the fishing, uh, recreational, um, kingfish operators, everything within the bays. You just, why would you want to put it at risk? And, you know, the SA government is uh, proud or it promotes Port Lincoln's successful aquaculture industry as being uh, based on pristine oceanic waters. 
pretty hard to boast about pristine oceanic waters when you have a desal plant stuck in the middle of it. Do you think, Mark, that money could be raised elsewhere to, to put it out at, at Seaford West, $150 million? Oh, for sure. I mean, you've got to think about long term too. We want to have a plant, a desalination plant that is scalable, that that has room for future growth, uh, future generation of more water, etc. So, um, you know, there's the... There's the, there's the federal there's a whole heap of options that um, could be explored. I mean, that's, that's a bit out of my league, but I'm sure if there's a will, there's a way. Do you think it was a, a, a waste of time having the site selection committee if this is the way that, that uh, the decision went? 100%. The Billy Lights never went away. It was always the base case. And so the, the site selection committee was uh, formed to pick an alternative site, and they did, and, and they chose Sleepwood West, and, and they spent a lot of time um, coming to that conclusion. So there's been a lot of money spent on it and and appears it's all been a waste of time. Mark Andrews from EPC Food speaking with Brooke Neindorf. And there's more information about this online. Just go to abc.net.au slash rural, sorry, slash news. Uh, It will also be on the the rural page as well. A couple of you uh, have been interested to get in touch about this. Uh, Julie is concerned about the salt uh, and where, where that would go and says, learn to live with the water we have. Um, another Julie, not sure if it's the same Julie. Uh, once again, money is the priority for the state government over the care of our environment or for that matter, the local business community. If we don't protect our pristine waters, we will lose them. And once they're gone, there's no going back. They can find money for sporting facilities, car races and bringing celebrities to Adelaide shows where their priorities are. Thanks for your text. Uh, Also, uh, another text uh, from Brian saying, I bet the Billy Light desal plant will finish up $150 million more expensive than they are saying. Uh, No government projects come in on budget. If you'd like to have your say on this, text me. Zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. It is eighteen minutes to one. Afternoons with Sonia Feldhoff. How's it going, Sonia? Not too bad. Now, we hear about shortages everywhere. Why is there a shortage of rockets, for goodness sake? Uh, Harv on the text line just says, the rocket shortage? Thank goodness lettuce is cheap again. Uh, Dave says, North Korea makes very nice rockets. They keep throwing them away. <laughs> uh, and before they don't we... quite make it into space, unfortunately, <laughs> no. and you don't want to put your satellite on it. Oh, I think it's more missiles, isn't it? Sonia Feldhoff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Hundreds of people from across Australia, not just South Australia, have helped remove thousands of carp from an iconic South Australian lake in an attempt to put a dent in the carp population there. In the end, the SA carp frenzy at Barmer over the weekend saw nearly six tonne of the pest fish caught by recreational fishers. And a river researcher says the community-led support is actually required to control carp numbers in local waterways. Research professor at Griffith University, Mark Kennard, says that while the National Carp Control Plan could work, community involvement is key to that success, and that includes carp-catching competitions. Certainly carp have been widespread throughout places like the Murray-Darling for a very long time and they're forming a major part of the fish biomass in the river. But floods in the last couple of years have really enhanced the spawning and recruitment of carp. So there has been a bit of an explosion in carp numbers in the last year or so. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. 
obviously it's hard to put a number on it, but is there any sort of, um, yeah, I guess figure or measurement you could put around, you know, how much they've sort of exploded, even if it's just in broad terms? There has been a National Carp Control Plan that was recently released, like late last year, and I was just looking at the numbers in there. They do have some facts around that the national biomass of carp can range from 200,000 tonnes up to around a million tonnes under ideal breeding conditions. And that's, you know, when there's a series of years of of very high rainfall and river flows. So we don't have accurate numbers, but, you know, it's potentially up to a million tonnes of carp in rivers across Australia and places like Murray-Darling Basin. There's certainly an area where there's extremely high biomass and numbers of carp. It is a concern for the native species and the values of the river that we care about. What impact do they have on Australian waterways? Yeah, so I mean, carp are often, you know, it's been suggested they can be a symptom of uh, declines in the health of the river and also a cause of declines in river health. You know, in terms of the types of impacts they have on river systems, the way they, they feed, the, the way they forage, they grub around in the in the bottom sediments, can resuspend the sediment in the water. So it's, it's making the water uh, more turbid, so less clear, and that can have impacts on native species like fish. It can increase primary product production and exacerbate impacts of algal blooms as they're resuspending the sediment and the nutrients in the water. So they're, they're altering the habitat and the water quality of, of the river and that can that can affect uh, native species like fish and, and crayfish, that sort of thing. They also can compete with native species for food. So they eat zooplankton and phytoplankton and many of our native species also eat those types of food. So they're competing with our native species. They're degrading uh, the habitat of native species. Another impact that we're seeing more recently is there's been an increase in fish kills. So there's reports of large numbers of carp dying due to low dissolved oxygen levels in some parts of the places like the Murray-Darlings. If you're getting large numbers of carp that are dying, that can further degrade water quality and impact native fish species as well. So there's also been reports of Murray cod and golden perch and bony brim. These are all really highly valuable native species. They've also been seen in the fish kills that we're seeing in places like Menindee Lakes and elsewhere. So, yeah, there's no doubt carp are a real problem, and, but there's certainly a challenge what we can do about it. What, you know, what are the, some of the solutions to this problem is the big challenge. Do you have any numbers or estimates around how many carp eggs one fish can spawn? Yeah, so the, the bigger the fish, the more eggs it can produce. So there's been uh, research done over the years to show that, you know, the average fecundity or average numbers of eggs a female can hold is about 100 to 200,000 eggs per kilogram of fish. So some of these carp get very big, you know, 10, 10 kilograms of more. So well over a million eggs per year can be produced by carp. So they're what we say is a highly fecund species. They can generate lots of eggs and lots of um, larvae and juveniles that contribute to the, those growing populations in good times. And you touched on the National Carp Control Plan. We're seeing some creative community sort of solutions or, or ways to try and at least put a little dent in those carp populations, um, one being a carp fishing competition called the Carp Frenzy that we saw in South Australia over the weekend. Uh, are there any other innovative ways you've seen of helping to reduce the population or, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on being creative about it? definitely a challenge and you know there's no silver bullet for all this you know that's the carp herpes virus that was put up as you know a magic solution to that yes that could potentially work but it's going to require a combination of things to to really try and control carp so you know in terms of innovative approaches i really like it was a few years ago now but this there was an idea of a carp separation cage so it's putting 
these traps within fishways on the on the River Murray and elsewhere, and carp swim differently to native fish. And so these carp separation cages were able to capture carp only and and have a very low catch of native species. So that was a way you could clear out the cage periodically. But, you know, there's no one solution. I think initiatives like doing carp busters we have in Queensland and, and you know, carp fishing comps, that's one way to reduce the population of carp and hopefully help our native species. But it's really going to require a combination of efforts. Research professor, professor at Griffith University, Mark Kennard, speaking with Anita Ward. And staying with the fish theme, the South Australian aquaculture company Clean Seas says it's in the final stages of a trial to raise kingfish in a more, on a more sustainable diet by ensuring it retains its nutritional benefits. It's been feeding the fish algal oil, which is produced independently using renewable energy instead of the usual fish oil feed. Research and development manager Samantha Chown says a tasting day was recently held in Port Lincoln to identify whether consumers could actually taste the difference. And she says it's been an important part of research. So we've been running a feed trial here at Clean Seas over the summer and we've been looking at replacing the fish oil in our diet with an algal oil. So the reason that we're doing this is all about sustainability and improving the sustainability of our diet and our farming practices. Today we uh, have wrapped up the trial and we are specifically looking to see whether participants can tell the difference between fish raised on a fish oil diet or an algal oil diet. Can you explain a bit more about an algal oil diet? What does that actually mean? We've got dietary fish oil in our kingfish feeds and, you know, oil is an important part of the diet for energy and things like that. So if we take the fish oil out, we need to put something back in its place and ideally something that's going to provide the same nutritional benefit to the end consumer. So the algal oil that we're using is produced completely independently of the marine environment and using renewable energy. So it's a really great story for us. Today you have a tasting. Can you explain why you're doing that? So for us, it's really important that when we manipulate the diets for our kingfish that the end consumer is still getting a really great tasty product. So if we're looking to implement this sort of diet on our farm, we want to make sure that our consumers have still got a really tasty kingfish at the end of the day. There's been about 20 people come through the door and taste a kingfish. What has been the general consensus? We've had lots of people saying that uh, the fish tastes quite similar and that it's very tasty, so that's good to hear. Yeah, just lots of really great feedback so far. I had a go myself at tasting the sashimi. So the way it works is there's three different types and I really like the taste of one and not so much the third sample. Uh, And then you revealed something at the end. Can you explain to our listeners what that was? So as part of our trial today, we have been running a triangle test, uh, which is essentially providing participants with three samples, and two of them are the same and one of them is different. We ask them to go through the tasting and provide us with feedback the whole way through, and then at the end of the tasting, we reveal to them that two of them were actually the same and one was different, and we ask the participants to tell us which one they think was different. So how did I go? So you did fantastically. You were absolutely able to discern uh, which one was different, which is great. And good news from an environmental perspective is that you actually preferred the taste of the fish that was raised on 100% algal oil. And that's the aim of this study, isn't it? So you want people to, to eat that kind of fish and enjoy it. Exactly. I think if we can raise kingfish on a much more sustainable diet and people still love the taste of it, that's a big win. How important is it to have these kind of tasting days as a part of your research? Oh, so important. I think, 
you know, we go through these trials and we look at, you know, growth parameters and product quality things, but at the end of the day, if our fish doesn't taste good and, and our consumers don't want to eat it, then there's no point. Clean Seas Research and Development Manager Samantha Chan speaking with Bernadette Clark there. I find it remarkable that the fish feed has had so much effect on the taste of the fish and that you could, you could actually really significantly taste it from what Bernadette was saying there. That was really interesting. We've had a, a text in from Mark from Maitland who wants to know why the Sleaford West site is more expensive than the uh, Billy Lights Point uh, cost. So I dare say that will be forthcoming. You probably could find that online as well. But uh, um, keep your texts coming on what you make of this desalination plant decision. The number to text in on is zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. We'll move to the southeast now. And uh, would you live in a home made of hemp? With the state's first industrial hemp processing facility being developed by Vakura in Monato, growers are having to decide if they should be growing industrial hemp or hemp for seed. One southeast farmer is hopeful he will soon be able to grow both from the same crop. Good Country Hemp owner Mick Anderson says his business has had success with its hemp food products and is hopeful industrial hemp products will become just as in demand. We've been quite busy. The sales are always picking up and month on month we seem to be breaking records with our sales, which is great for hemp foods. We've got a distributor for our hemp foods in South Australia and we're just about to launch a new distributor in Victoria as well. So we're starting to get into the eastern seaboard market. But in terms of busyness, we're doing a lot of work in our processing plant at the moment. We're installing some new equipment both on the oil pressing front but also on the de-hulling front. And we're also growing some crops in the southeast at the moment, which is also uh, added to our workload. Are those crops for your food products? This year we're not growing any seed for food. We've got enough reserves of seed for food at the moment, but uh, we are growing these crops for fibre. So uh, we're growing for a company in Adelaide who needs some uh, biomass to develop their building products. This is the the new one going in in Monado, is that right? That's right. Vercura are the company and they're building a processing plant for hemp fibre in Monado and they've contacted us to grow some hemp for them with our usual hemp growers in the southeast of the uh, of the state. And how's that been going? Is the process all that different to what you've already been doing? It's not a lot different. Growing hemp fibre is probably a little more, bit more forgiving than uh, growing hemp for seed. And uh, the varieties that we're using to grow fibre, the, uh, the plant is much taller, of course. It's uh, growing uh, three and a half metres tall at the moment. And it's quite a thick crop. Uh, It hasn't gone to seed. Actually, when it goes to seed, the hemp plant stops growing. So we want some very late varieties, ones that flower very late. So they'll grow quite tall and thick first before they set seed. And actually, when they set seed, that's when we harvest it. In the future, we're looking to harvest seed and fibre from the same crop. So using a dual purpose variety. But at this stage, uh, we've got specific varieties for seed for food production and then we're growing specific varieties for fibre. When might we start to see some of that come through the dual processing crops? Uh, We're working towards it. I think maybe next year we'll be able to do that. So the real challenge, I guess, is the machinery that's needed to do that. So we're harvesting fibre and seed from the same crop. So it's it's a conventional style of header, but with a double front on it. 
So it's got one front up high to harvest the seed and then it's got a windrower, if you like, down below to uh, harvest the fibre in one move. Those machines don't come cheap and uh, there's only two that I know of in Australia at the moment and uh, we'd dearly love to get one here and uh, be able to give the farmer two incomes from the same crop, one for fibre and one for seed. And as a grower and and producer of hemp, is it the expansion of fibre and um, industrial hemp something you're excited about in the state? Oh, definitely. Definitely. We want to see more hemp grown in the state. And um, when hemp became legal to cultivate in South Australia in November 2017, initially we saw a lot of seed production in the state and uh, that's been processing into foods. But now we're seeing a surge in the fibre production side of the hemp industry, which is really exciting, not just here in South Australia, but interstate as well. So at the last count, there was six hemp fibre processing plants in in either planning or construction phase. And, uh, you know, we need some more acres to grow the hemp to feed those processing plants. And the hemp from those crops will go into various products that fibre is used for. Building products, there's uh, weed matting, insulation, and even things like uh, recyclable plastics and replacements for fibreglass. So uh, we're talking about biofibres and things like that. So it sounds like it's still a bit of a growing industry. Are you hopeful some more farmers in the region might come on board to start growing hemp? Yeah, I think so. If uh, all things going well with the development of Bercura at Monato, we're looking to grow some more hemp next year and we'll definitely need to bring some more farmers on board there. So we're looking forward to that for sure. And the region's been pretty good for it, right? You haven't had any problems with growing it down here in the Limestone Coast? No, the Limestone Coast is a very good region to grow hemp. Uh, The climate's good and uh, the hemp crop fits in with the rotation of farmers who are growing uh, in the southeast at the moment. It does need to be irrigated and centre pivot irrigation works the best. Plenty of good quality underground water in the southeast, which is fantastic, and good soils. And good farmers too, you know, farmers who are, are good at growing small seed crops and growing specialty crops. So I can't think of a better region than the southeast to be growing hemp. It's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Good Country Hemp owner Mick Anderson speaking with Elsie Adamo. So could even hemp be used in state government affordable housing projects? Well, the South Australian Minister for Housing, Nick Champion, says using hemp-based materials for affordable housing is worthy of consideration, but any future use of industrial hemp needs to be balanced against several factors, including cost competitiveness, its ability to be used at scale, load-bearing capacity, training of the labour force, construction methods, and the capacity to provide the necessary fixtures and overall construction efficiencies. So not ruled out, but uh, obviously, uh, basically, that just uh, sums up uh, basically it needs to be fit for purpose and, uh, yeah, able to do the job. So we will keep following that. That's about all I have time for in the program today. But keep listening because Sonia Feldoff is again live from the Writers' Week at Torrens Parade Ground today. And her guests include uh, Algird Baharovic, who is the author of uh, Dogs of Europe, who's been banned in his home country of Belarus as an extremist or as extremist material. Alexander McCall, author of the number one ladies detective agency book um, and uh, Jane Harper's uh, also there as well as live music from Becky Cole. So lots happening. Keep listening to your ABC local radio. It's coming up to one o'clock.
Hello, Narelle Graham here. Join me for Late Afternoons. You'll get a laugh as well as all the latest news and current affairs. Weekdays from 3.30, Narelle Graham on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.